0: I love that intro. It definitely sets up the scene, doesn't it? A couple of housekeeping notes before we start. First is uh, to put any parents at ease. Uh, It is funny how the timing works out that we're talking about evil at the same time we have a bunch of three-year-olds and second graders in the audience. Um, So just I want to encourage parents, I've done my best to make it age-appropriate as we engage with the topic of evil. I won't be getting too gory uh, or or, or gross or weird in the message this morning. Um, But also I want to encourage those of you that just got Bibles, uh, we're going to be giving you opportunities to use those. And so Second graders especially, we're going to be giving you page numbers. But all of you, second graders and three-year-olds, flip through your Bible. Use it. It is your gift. It's something God wants you to have. And if you'd rather flip through and look at the pictures, then listen to me. That is okay grown-ups, I hope that you're not also tempted to look at the pictures rather than listen to me, but that's okay too. Uh, so with that, let's let's dive in to the topic. And, and to get into it, I've been reading a really fascinating book the last few weeks. Uh, it's called The 12 Rules for Life by Jordan B. Peterson. Uh, and if you don't know him, he's, oh, someone knows him. All right, cool. Um, he's a secular atheist professor, taught at Harvard, uh, currently teaches in Canada, uh, is not a religious person at all. Uh, and yet, just by being a psychologist and sociologist and observer, Observing the world around him, he's come up with these twelve rules. And what's been really fascinating is how his rules really dovetail with rules that I've gotten from a slightly different source uh, than he has. Uh, and that through revelation from God, uh, the rules I have from God are very interestingly consistent with what he's seen just through observation, even with no faith background at all. And his core premise is this: that life is pain. Uh, life is suffering. And so his 12 rules are designed to minimize suffering because at the end of the day, with no heaven, no hell, the best you can do is minimize suffering. And that's where his rules come from. But about halfway through the book, he made this point, which I thought was interesting. He said, life is indeed nasty, brutish, and short, as the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes so memorably remarked, but man's capacity for evil makes it worse. This means that the central problem of life, which is the dealing with its brute facts, is not merely what and how to sacrifice in order to diminish suffering, right? That's his main point. But what and how to sacrifice to diminish suffering and evil, the conscious and voluntary and vengeful source of the worst suffering. So even a secular person with no spiritual stranger thing realities uh, believes just from observation that there must be evil. And it's the only way to explain the reality that we see around us. Uh, and if you were not here last week, Dion Garrett uh, jumped into this exact thing. This idea of human evil. And, and he was riffing on um, on this, not riffing, but explaining and unpacking the story of Jesus uh, being tempted in the wilderness uh, by the devil, uh, and in case you weren't here last week, uh, I do have a photo of that historical moment. You can look at that. Um, yeah, no, that's that's not how it went down. Um, But truly, check that out, because what Dion talked about last week was this idea that evil is a human reality uh, that works through our own self-deception and the exploitation of our desires and our vulnerabilities. Uh, And every word of what Dion said last week, I think even someone like Jordan B. Peterson would have agreed with. But now here in week two, part two on evil is where I'm going to take it into a realm where I don't believe that Jordan Peterson would agree with me, and maybe some of you wouldn't either, which is that evil is not just a human problem. I believe that the Bible teaches us that we have an enemy. There is a real being out there that is evil personified who is against us. The Bible describes it this way. And, uh, Peter writes to a church, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so I know that already I'm going to lose some people because this feels so weird, so kooky, so religious fundamentalist, you know, scare people with the boogeyman of the devil. Um, But what I would ask you to do is to withhold judgment, to suspend your disbelief just even for a few minutes. Because if we take this as true, I believe that you're going to see some explanations of reality that make far more sense if there really is a devil than if there isn't. But I recognize that we're not all there, But so I'm just asking, give me a few minutes to make the case to see what the Bible teaches on this and see if it doesn't persuade you as well that maybe there's something to this reality. Because otherwise, the choice is this, that if if we decide to believe that there isn't a devil, that's a teaching that's too far out there, that's just some weird religious extremism that's that's survived to the modern day, that, then what that means is there's a force that's out there malevolently working to your harm and you have no awareness And if you don't know that something's trying to harm you, then you also cannot fight back against it. And so our choice is to kind of hunker down and hope that the devil isn't real and and just get through life as unscathed as possible, or like Jordan B. Peterson, with as minimal suffering as possible. Or we can stand unflinching and gaze at the truth of what scripture says and see if that doesn't, in fact, help us live bold, brave, and ultimately far more victorious lives. So let's look at what our passage today has to say. So we're evil part two of this unseen battle. And now here's a moment of interaction. Uh, if you are a boring grown up who didn't get any Bible today, you can find this passage on page 1177. But if you're a second grader and you got an adventure Bible, you can go to page 1300 and you can read the very words that I'm going to talk about this morning. And so I'd love for you to do that right now. Open up your Bible, go to page 1300 and see if you can find this passage and read along as we talk about what God's word has to say for us. Uh, And for people that don't feel like doing that, we're going to put on the TV screen too. So we'll make it easy regardless. So let's dive into what Paul has to say as he's looking at Christians and encouraging them in their own struggles. He says this, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Right, I don't know if you caught that, but all of you that got a Bible, that word of God, that's your sword. That's the sword that we use to fight the spiritual battle. And we've given you something powerful today, and I hope you uh, are encouraged. And now the rest of you that just are reacting to this, you might be like me, which is I read this passage, and I get jazzed. I am still a little boy at heart, and you tell me I get to put on armor and I get to be a soldier? Uh, my two career paths where I was either going to go into the Air Force or I was going to be a pastor, and, and I still sometimes think I maybe should have gone the other way. So I hear this, and I'm like, yes, I get to be a soldier. I get to put on armor. This hits me right where I am. I recognize that not everybody has a little boy inside of them. And doesn't necessarily react to this passage the same way. Uh, And so let me me say it like this to you in case the metaphor doesn't land. Here's what Paul is noticing is that people struggle and that we can be as prepared as we want. And when we try to go through life and be in control and and unmoved and unrocked and, and just stable on our course, and it is so difficult to do And so I want to call out just this one verse uh, that he says that, that here's why this matters. Not just because you've got some fantasy of being a soldier in God's army, but because we need to be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil, and then after the battle, you will still be standing firm. And I think this promise is for everybody. Whether you have illusions of military might or anything, I think we all at the end of the day just want to stand firm. I know that my wife and I, so many of our conversations are around, we keep thinking, oh, if we could just get this one thing in place, then we'll be stable and we'll be steady. and like, Oh, if this could happen, and yet it just feels like it never happens. Like this moment where we're standing firm and we're just stable and life is harmonious, we never get there. It's always just around the corner. And if that's how you feel, then this is a promise for you today as well. That there is a way, Paul says, to stand firm in the face of suffering, in the face of evil, in the face of all the whammies that get thrown at us in life. There's a way to stand firm, and that's what we're going to do today. So I'm excited because what that means is we get to do spiritual boot camp this morning. We're going to go through the training that we need to fight this spiritual battle that Paul describes so that we can stand firm at the end of the day. So we're going to talk about this, this unseen battle that Paul describes. And before we get into the specifics of boot camp, I, I want to start with this caveat, which is here's the thing. If you're fighting an unseen battle that, by definition, other people can't see, you're going to look ridiculous. You just are, right? If, if someone's fencing against the air and you're like, oh, I'm fighting a bad guy, people say you're like being a clown. Like, what, what are you doing there? Uh, it's going to look ridiculous to the world. I want to call this out uh, and give you one very real-world example uh, to, to make the point. See, there's a guy that some of you may have heard of, Ignaz Zemmelweis. Uh, we've talked about him up here. Uh, he's the doctor who 200 years ago figured out that there were germs. And all the people around him were dying at, at horrifying rates. And this doctor said to people fellow doctors. There's this unseen battle going on. There's these germs that are killing people. And if you just take a rock and you rub your hands on it with some water, it's going to save lives. And those of you who know the story know that they said, you're a nut job. And they locked him in a mental institution but we know that he was right because we live in a world that he created where we say, no, soap is a thing, and you wash your hands in soap, it kills germs. We actually believe him now, but, but do you see how ridiculous it looked to the people around him? Even though he was right, that there was an unseen battle and you had to fight it in a very weird way. There didn't seem to be any connection between rubbing your hands with soap and saving lives, and yet somehow it worked. It worked. And that's what the unseen battle is like for us now today too. There are weapons and strategies that we try to bring into play and they don't work in this battle. And in fact, the things that do work, I promise you, are going to look ridiculous to the people around us. And yet, just like soap works, these work, I promise you. But we got to go into it with our eyes open, that it's not going to necessarily fit common sense and it's not going to make sense to the people around us if they don't believe that there's an unseen battle to begin with. So let's go into it with that eyes, because here's what happens. We try to fight these battles, we try to stand firm in life using the weapons and the strategies that we use in real life. And then we're surprised when they don't work. So let's, let's go through a couple of those things. So first is we try to fight the unseen battle with the wrong power. See, Paul starts right off with this point, right? He says that we we fight this battle through God and his mighty power, not our own. Because what happens otherwise is we take power that we have or that we've learned from experience works and we try to apply it to this battle. And when that happens, tragedy. I'll give you an example. Uh, The Battle of Crimea in the 1850s was fought between the Russians on one side and then an allied force of the English, the French, and the Ottomans on the other side. And there was one notorious battle in the war of Crimea uh, called the Battle of Balaclava. And the commander on the English side was a man named Lord Cardigan. Lord Cardigan. He liked to wear button-up sweaters. I'm not kidding. Uh, and in fact, and this should tell you something about how this battle's gonna go that this man's name has been passed down to us as a fashion icon, not as a military, uh, strategist. Alright, so Lord Cardigan is in charge of the English forces on one side of the Battle of Balaclava, and he's got at his disposal a variety of units. You know, every army's got different units that have different strengths and weaknesses. And one of his units under his command was the Light Brigade. Now, a light brigade is horses and men with very light armor and lances and swords. And a light brigade is an amazing unit to have at your disposal because they are quick. They are nimble. They are maneuverable. They can wipe out infantry very easily because a a person with just a sword is no match against a guy on a horse with a lance. And so they can outflank, outmaneuver. If a battle's mobile, they can change the front at any moment. They're an amazing, powerful unit to have at your disposal. Now, you know what a light brigade is not good at? Charging down a two mile canyon, cannon, canyon, with cannons on all of the ridges, with a fortified cannon fort at the end. Horses and quickness and nimbleness and maneuverability, they don't help you when you're going through a canyon that's two miles long and they're just shooting cannons at you the whole way. So guess what order Lord Cardigan gave to his light brigade? Charge the canyon. The poet Lord Tennyson described it this way when they got this order. There's not to make reply. There's not to reason why. There's but to do and die into the valley of death, rode the six hundred. Cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed out with shot and shell, boldly they rode, and well, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. They were decimated, wiped out, didn't take a single objective, lost more than half their horses, over a third of their men. It was the most pointless waste of power in that entire struggle. See, this is what happens. If you have a powerful weapon, but you use it in the wrong situation, in the wrong battle, you will not just lose, you will get destroyed. And what I think we do so often is we take uh, the powers and weapons that we have learned from human conflict, the things that when we're fighting the the very seen battle between us and other people, and we say, this works for this, and so therefore it should work for that as well, and it doesn't. Not only that, I'm going to tell you, I don't even think some of these powers work all that well in human conflict as well. See, what we do in human conflict is we try to prevail against the other person. We try to control them through a variety of means to enforce our will upon theirs, Maybe that's something like military might. If I can just beat you in a battle, then then I win. Or maybe it's using our positional authority. If I'm your boss, I get to tell you what to do. If I'm your dad or your mom, I get to tell you what to do, kiddo. Maybe it's using our vote where we can say, hey, if I can just get 51% of people to agree with me, it doesn't matter what you think or how you feel. I can enforce my will upon you. We take this power of control and we try to use it to bludgeon others into submission and it's then what we try to bring into the spiritual realm as well. We try to control these things that we can't control, these whammies and the suffering and all of the curves that life throws at us. We cannot control them. And so we're left permanently shaken and on steady ground because we try to get it under our control and we just can't. But did you notice what some of the pieces of the armor that Paul talked about were? He talks about things like salvation, can't control salvation. It's something that God gave to you freely as a gift. It's something that Jesus earned on your behalf. We can't wrest that away. We can't have control over our own saving position. Or we talk about faith, faith we, we talk about is something that we have. Oh, I got to just have more faith. You don't have faith. You are given faith. Romans 10 says that we receive faith through the hearing of the word or even for those of us that have Bibles through the reading of it. Faith is a gift that God gives to you through his power. Not only that, his righteousness. Righteousness is not something that we do by being holier and better than other people. Righteousness is something that we receive from Christ himself. You see, all of these pieces of spiritual armor that Paul talks about, they are things that we have zero control over and yet we have been given them freely. And if that's true, if we have received freely these amazing gifts of God, these powerful pieces of armor, salvation, righteousness, faith, then maybe we can relinquish control of some other things in our life as well. Maybe I don't have to browbeat an employee into submission. Maybe I can release control and, and work to build and lift them up as well. Maybe I don't have to correct my spouse if they're, if they're having an opinion or doing something that, that might threaten the stability of our marriage. But maybe with the, with the security that comes from righteousness and faith and the knowledge and assurance of my salvation, I can give up control. That doesn't sound very powerful, which is why we don't use it. And yet the most effective power in the unseen battle is to relinquish control to the things that God has given us and to rest secure in what he's done. And if we do that... If we do that even in earthly conflict, I think you'll find what I have found, which is the less I've tried to wrest power and control over others, the more that they've lifted me up and lifted themselves up as well. The less I've tried to impose my will blindly on someone like my spouse or or a person I disagree with, the more I'm able to bring them along for the victory as well. That's a hard thing to teach, and so that brings me to the second wrong way we try to fight this unseen battle. You see, we, we, we try to fight against the wrong enemy. And this can be pretty devastating as well. Uh, World War II, there's a fairly infamous uh, moment where it's called Operation Cottage. Now, Operation Cottage well, took place in the Aleutian Islands, uh, which are off Alaska. And the Japanese forces had, had um, taken a position in several of the Aleutian Islands. And so the allied American and Canadian forces were trying to repel the Japanese from the island. And there's one island in particular, the island of Kiska that they had seen that the Japanese had had taken control, and so they mounted an offensive Operation Cottage. And the plan was this. The Canadians were going to land on the north side of the island, the Americans on the south side of the island. And they were going to push through until they met in the middle, wiping out any enemy patrols that were in their path. Now, the problem is that the day of the attack, it was very foggy and cloudy. The other problem is that unbeknownst to the Allied forces, two days before the attack, the Japanese had quietly evacuated the island. Can you see where this is going? So the Canadians land on the North Shore and were told to go until they met resistance. The Americans on the South Shore, go until you met resistance. Guess what resistance they met? Each other. 313 men killed on an island where there wasn't a single enemy force. See, if we get the enemy wrong, we can inflict so much damage on ourselves. So what's the right enemy? And this is where I'm going to plant my flag in the sand, and I'm going to say it. The right enemy is the devil, and it is an unpopular thing to talk about. But what's interesting is that there's this... Then a diagram overlap of people who believe in Jesus and believe in his teachings and think he was wise and said true things, and people who don't believe in a literal personified devil. And yet, Jesus himself is one of the reasons we believe in a devil, because he said there's a devil. In John eight forty four, Jesus said the devil is a liar and the father of lies, and he is the one who is tricking the Pharisees that were arguing with him. So if Jesus believed in a devil, then it behooves us to at least take his lead on that. And it especially behooves us right now as we look at this point. Because if there isn't a devil, the enemy is other people. If there aren't Japanese forces on the island, then we're going to wipe out the Canadians. Because we're going to misperceive who's actually fighting against us. And what happens when we have the wrong enemy is that we start to see the people around us. And there are awful people around us. Certainly in my life, there are people I dislike. There are people who make my life miserable. And it is going to be so easy to see them as my primary enemy, as the person who is ruining my life. But maybe, maybe they're not the enemy. Maybe, in fact, they are a hostage in this supernatural battle against the real enemy, the devil. And do you see how that suddenly can change the equation? If that person who's inflicting harm on my life, if I can take a step back and say, you're not, you're not the enemy combatant here, you're actually a fellow hostage that's enthralled to the tricks and the deceptions that the devil has put on you, that you're, you're, you're angry and you're scared and you're hurt and so you lash out at the people around you. If I have that perspective, if I know who the right enemy is, I can engage with that person in a whole different way. And there's two things I think that keep, from doing, uh, keep us from doing that. One is this, is that we tend to see people primarily as victims. And I know that we don't in our culture today have a lot of sympathy for victims. Because we say, well, you know, yeah, maybe you are addicted to drugs, but you shouldn't have gotten addicted to drugs. You know, or maybe your marriage is miserable, but you shouldn't have married the wrong person. And, and, and we, we put these things on people. We, we, we victim blame. But maybe if instead of using the word victim, we, we, we use the word hostage, it can take us out of this blaming mentality. Right, I think about John McCain, who recently passed away. You know, you know, he was a war hero. He was a prisoner of war, served in camp. And, and no one said, John McCain, you know, how dare you get captured by the Japanese? You know, it's your own fault. You shouldn't, have gotten, you shouldn't have gotten caught if you didn't want to be a prisoner of war. You know, if someone's a hostage, hopefully that maybe removes some of our victim blaming and lets us say, hey, whether we think it's their fault or not, uh, if they're a hostage in battle and, and they're on my side, then I have an obligation to help them. And, and the second thing uh, that I think we can do is that um, it lets us disregard at least a little bit some of the damage they inflict on us. I picture uh, like SWAT teams, like when they go in to rescue you know, someone who's been held hostage and that person's maybe been imprisoned and held captive for, for days or weeks or months and, uh, and, and they're scared and they're hurting and they don't know who to trust and now suddenly this door bangs open and it's a guy with a, with a vest and a helmet and a gun and, 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 and what do those hostages often do? They lash out. They fight back. They, they don't know if this is just one more captor here to torment them. And, and so, the, so even as the police, person, police officer is going in uh, and the person's hitting and striking back, does the police officer take it personally? No. They say, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to be scared. I'm here to help you. I'm on your side. And even as they're getting bludgeoned or hit or pummeled by the scared, terrified hostage they're able to say, I'm on your side. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to help you. They don't take those attacks personally. And I'll tell you, this is the hardest one for me to do out of all the things that we have to do to fight the battle, right? I struggle with this so bad because if you're on the island of Kiska and someone's stabbing you with a bayonet, it, it's, it's not that easy to say, oh, you're a Canadian. You're nice. I know you don't mean it. Whether they mean it or not, they're inflicting damage. And, and yet we've got to have the right perspective that says it's the wrong enemy, And even the people that are inflicting damage on me, they're hostages in the same war that we're fighting. And the only way I think that we can have the encouragement, the wisdom, and the compassion to do that is is we've got to get the third thing right, which is this, that we've got to fight with the right intel. Right? Military intelligence is this understanding of what's going on, that you know who's where and what's happening. And if you have the wrong intel, it's not going to go well for you. And I'll give you an example. Quick history pop quiz. Who can tell me what year World War II ended? 1945. Good job. History class worked for you. Here's what's interesting. Who can tell me what year the hostilities of World War II ended? 1974. World War II, peace treaties were signed in 1945. Hostilities didn't end until 1974. And you know why? Because of this guy, Lieutenant Onoda. Now, Lieutenant Anoda was in the Philippine theater of, of World War II, and he was given a very specific and strict command by his, uh, by his commanding officer, uh, the major, which was this, they sent him to the island of Lubang in the Philippines, and they said, you must defend this island with your life, never give up, never surrender. And then, when the peace treaty was signed in 1945, nobody remembered to tell Lieutenant Enoda that the war was over. And for the next twenty nine years he faithfully lived out his command. And they knew it because the poor Filipinos who are trying to like do fishing, you know, like have their vocation and make a living do fishing, every time they got near the island of Lubang, he'd shoot at them. And they tried to tell him, they tried to let this guy know that the war was over. They actually airdropped pamphlets in Japanese that said, Hey, the war is over, you can go home now. And he looked at that and he said, Enemy propaganda. And he wouldn't believe it. They tried over and over again to to bring people in to tell him and he'd just shoot at them and scare them off. Finally, 29 years later, a young Japanese college student who was born after the war and had grown up hearing the legend of this mythical Japanese soldier who was still fighting World War II, he went to the island of Lubang and he found him. And he said, the war's over. You got to believe me. And and Lieutenant Inoda said, I'll only believe you if my commanding officer tells me that that my orders have been changed. Thankfully, that guy was not dead. They found him. He'd been retired for, 30, for three decades. He was working as a bookseller in Okinawa. They had him put his uniform back on. They flew him out to the island of Luban, and he officially relieved Lieutenant Inoda of his duty in 1974. But think of how much of his life was wasted by having the wrong intel. 30 years that he could have been living uh, a peaceful life, having a family and kids, and instead he, he lived off the, he survived off the wilderness for 30 years. He, he stuck to his post for 30 years, and it's noble, and it's brave, and it's heroic, and it was so wrong. And this is the position that I think many of us are in today. So here's this moment of good news. If, if you don't know what I'm about to say, then let this be true to you. This battle This supernatural battle against unseen forces, the victory is already won. 2,000 years ago. We have achieved victory in this war against the devil. And it happened not because of anything we did, but because Jesus Christ died on the cross and then conquered death and the devil see, in Christian circles, we often talk about Jesus' work on the cross as, oh, he forgave us for our sins, and, and he made things right between us and God, and that is all true, but we leave out a very important distinction that that was also an act of war by Jesus's part, that in that act of conquering death, he also conquered the devil. And Revelation 20 says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he bound Satan in the pits of hell, and Satan is now chained and has been since that day 2,000 years ago. Our main enemy, the primary person we're fighting against, is chained. Now, you might ask yourself, well, then how come we're still fighting this battle? What have we been talking about this morning? Well, let me go back to First Peter 5.8. Okay? Because it says this. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And this is 100% true. But the other piece that you need to know about this is that that lion has been chained up. And he cannot reach you. He cannot prevail against you if you do not go within his sphere of influence. As people who won World War II, we were fine as long as we didn't go to the island of Lubang. Lieutenant Anota, he was still carrying on the war, but his sphere of influence was pretty limited. And as long as we understood what was happening, as long as we had the right intel... We could avoid where he was and none of us had to fear getting shot for the next 30 years after World War II was done. And it is exactly the same with the devil. He is malevolent, he is against us, he is the right enemy, and he is bound. And if we're aware of that, if we can push back against his lies, if we can keep ourselves from going within the sphere of his influence, there is nothing he can actually do to us. See, Jesus himself said in 1 John, um, it was said about Jesus in 1 John 3, it says this, that the work of Jesus was this, not just forgiveness of sins, not just making us right with God, the work of Jesus was to destroy the works of the devil. That's what Jesus did in his time on earth. He destroyed the works of the devil. That devil is a lion, but he is bound and he is chained. So what does that mean for us? All right, these are all the wrong ways that we've tried to fight this battle. And, and what, what, but to sum it all up for you, to, what does it mean to, to get the right power that comes from the security of our faith in the righteousness and the saving power of Jesus, the, the truth of knowing the right enemy, the peace that comes from having the right intelligence, which is that the battle is won. See, all of that put together adds up to this. See, it gives us the right vantage for this war. See, vantage is a great word, if you don't know it, it's a military word, and it refers to being in this spot, like the perfect best spot, where you can see everything that's going on, where you have the high ground, so if anyone tries to prevail against you, they can't, where you're able to to be unmoved and unshaken, where you can stand firm against any onslaught that anyone tries to give you. When you have the right vantage, you are immovable, you are unconquerable. But what does that mean for those of us that aren't military folks and and don't live that kind of a life? Let me make it real personal and real real to life about how this one thing can change the entire battle. And it's this just to share with you that I spent three years entrenched in the most miserable daily battle of my life, both physical and spiritual. And that was called junior high school. It was awful. And and as I talk to people, I think I'm not alone, uh, because anyone I talk to just shares with me this experience that junior high was miserable. And anyone who doesn't, I'm persuaded it's because they're repressing the memories. It was that bad. But the bullying, and the stress and the pressures, you know, like it was way hard in elementary school, and and, and the changing body that, that made it so hard to even know what was going on inside me and inside myself, junior high was a miserable, awful slog of a battle, and I came out bruised, and bleeding. But I often daydream, I really do, about how much I would love to go back to junior high now with the right vantage. Oh, I would slay junior high now. I'd be so good at it. You know, some bullies say, you know, like making fun of me for having pimples and being scrawny. And I could be like, dude, I know what my wife is going to look like in 20 years. You have nothing to say to me. You know, or, or, or like all the, the, the fears and the stresses of like not making the varsity soccer team when the, the first year I tried and, and all of the, the self-recrimination and blame and, and to be able to say, you know what, that has not impacted the success of my career at all, whether I made the soccer team my freshman year or not. And I'll tell you this, not one single adult has ever asked me what grade I got on my seventh grade chemistry exam. See, junior high was was damaging. It was devastating. It was bloody. But all it took would be having the right vantage point that I could go back and I know that I would sail through it like a breeze. That there's nothing any bully could say to me. In fact, not only that, I'd actually be able to have sympathy for the bullies because someone would would bully me and I'd be be able to say, I know your family life must not be great. I know you don't have people in your corner at home that that are giving you value and worth and so you come out here and you lash out at whoever's just in your path and I'd actually be able to have sympathy for the people who made my life miserable for three years with the vantage point of what I have now. See, that's how important having the right vantage can change. Like even something that could have been or would have been devastating isn't if we've got the right perspective. There's one more battle I want to share with you this morning. Uh, It's a fictional battle, but I I think it's the best summation of everything that that I've talked about here this morning. It's uh, the battle between Luke Skywalker and the combined forces of the Imperial Army, uh, the First Order. Let's check this out. I want every gun we have to fire on that man. You got him. Now, if we're ready to get moving, we can finish this. Sir? This is the picture. Yeah, this is, yeah, clap for that. That's amazing. This is the picture. This is the verse. Because what he's saying is when the dust clears, when the battle, when the smoke dissipates, you will still be standing firm, unfazed, untouched. And this is important. I don't don't want to gloss over this. Those lasers were real. And any other person, they would have destroyed them. It's not that the the fiery arrows that the devil shoots at us are are irrelevant or meaningless and, oh, we should just shake it off. I'm not saying shake it off. Damage happens in this unseen battle, and there is damage that is going on around you. The difference is when you have the right vantage point, when you're like Luke Skywalker and, and you are fighting the spiritual battle, no longer the earthly one, those lasers cannot touch you, and when the dust clears, you will still be standing firm. And it might feel like a hard thing to grasp. Like, how do we put on this armor? How do we live with truth and righteousness and all these things? Let me make it real simple for you through the words of another one of Jesus's apostles, James. James says this, he says, when it comes to the spiritual battle, the unseen war, come near to God and he will come near to you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. That's all it takes. And what I promise you is that no matter where you are in your own life journey, where you are in your faith or your relationship with God, you can take one step. To come near to God. Maybe it looks like committing one day to just be here worshiping God and connecting with him this way. Or maybe you're already doing that and, and so it's time to be intentional with another brother or sister in the faith and, and to come together to grow in your relationship with each other and with God. Or maybe it's making the commitment to spend 15 minutes a day in a faith-building discipline, letting God's word draw you in and, and teach you and form and shape you. Or maybe it's finding a way to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to spend the six other days of your week serving others and seeing how God himself comes alongside you when we serve the least of these around us. No matter where you are, I promise you, you can take one step to come near to God because he has already done so much for you. And then here's what's amazing. Here's how James continues in this passage. So he says, if you do this, you draw near to God, you submit yourselves to God. If you resist the devil... And I want you to guess how he finishes this verse. If you resist the devil and he will fight back and it's going to be a battle for the ages. Resist the devil and you'll win eventually, but you're going to come through scathed and scarred. Resist the devil and maybe you'll win, maybe you won't. You know, there's hell waiting for some of us. How do you think this verse finishes? Here's how it finishes. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will turn his cowardly tail and run because he knows he's a chained lion. And he knows that his lasers, as fierce as they may seem, are ultimately his deceptions and the ways that he tries to manipulate the world around him. And the moment we're wise, the moment we have the vantage point that says, Christ won the victory on my behalf, you have nothing left that you can do. He has nothing left but to face that truth himself, and he slinks away. This power is yours not because of anything you did or because you're holy enough or you're wise enough just simply because Christ won the victory 2,000 years ago the devil knows it and if you know it too he has no choice but to turn his tail and run his lasers cannot harm you and so whatever attacks are coming against you now whatever things are keeping you from standing firm I pray that you would hold and cling to this truth that you would draw near to God and let that devil run and get out of your life It's as simple as that. And it's for you. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that the victory is won. That you accomplished more for us than we could have ever done through thousands of years of our own earthly battle and striving. And so Lord, right now I ask that you would equip every man, woman, and child in this place with your armor that you would fit them with the salvation and the faith and the peace that comes from knowing that you are on our side and you have won the victory, that you would give us the truth and the eyes to see what's really going on in the unseen battle around us, that we would fight against the right enemy and not the wrong one. And Lord, that you would give us your word so powerfully in our hearts that we would be able to brandish the sword of the spirit knowing that nothing can prevail against the truth of your promises. And so specifically, Lord, I ask that you would draw near to every person here, that they would feel your closeness and that with that feeling, they would also see so clearly how the devil turns his back and runs. Amen.